Hello everybody and welcome back to your daily doses of wisdom. Today is our second podcast and I hope every, everyone of you enjoy. Uh, today we are Andrea, Ainoa, Dani and me, Nicole. So let's start with this, this second podcast. Let's start. I'm going to talk about the first topic, social perception. Mm, there are two words in the title. On the one hand, social, on the other hand, perception. Social refers about people, society, and perception is one of the people's ability to receive external information through impressions, senses. If I join both meanings, I can define the social perception notion like a process where individuals are able to make judgment, for example, based on observation, and form impression about other people. Moreover, it's a key component of social skills and social interaction. I will explain with an example. At first day of the course, history teacher called James introduced himself and tell several rules and also explain how was to apply his methodology with during the term. At the beginning, a student's perception was not good because he looked like sad, rigorous and a strict teacher. But next days, after when teacher began to explain the first lesson and activities, a student was happier with him because he explained several times exercise and in the case students didn't understand it, James repeated the necessary times. That is, at the beginning students had a wrong idea about James, but after some days that they changed his thoughts because they began to know more expect about him. Danny, could you have thought the same way the student did of James and why? Yes, well, um, regarding that, usually teachers on their first day adopt a strict attitude so that the students do not mock him. This usually happens also on, on the first day of any one of us when we first um, step into, the, into college. And for that reason, students realized the teacher was using a facade. He wasn't really him. He, wasn't, he was just um, he was playing a role and they began treating him as a human being. But I know that reminds me of a quote I really like. Your perception of me is a reflection of you. Do you like it? Wow, I have never heard it, but I love it. I will tell you another sentence. Our feelings are a product of our, of our perception. Okay, I really like that. Okay, thank you for speaking. I'm going to talk a little bit about an Asperger syndrome because it's related with the topic of social perception um, from my point of view, is very interesting. Asperger syndrome is one of the certain disorders that greatly affect the way an individual perceives his or her environment. These kinds of children who endure this diagnostic, they have several difficulties in the social interaction of the individual. When I have been working in campsites during summers, I remember that there was a child called John, with Asperger syndrome. It was very easy to identify him because he was usually far respect to the group. Nicole, do you know someone who endures Asperger diagnostic? 
No, but from my point of view, I think it's so difficult to work with this type of kids. If I had to work with them, I would have to study and research a lot of information about this syndrome and how I can treat them. Thank you, Nicole. Now, let's start with some questions for you, Dani. What is possible definition of impression for you? Tell us an example and finally, do you know who was a creator of impressions? Well, um, the, um, the impression for me is the perception that our brain has of something or someone. It's like um, the image that is um, that is um, like uh, in our brain, like it's created in our brain when we first see something or we uh, get the, sen uh, uh, the sense of something. And an example would be, for example, this morning, I was um, coming to college um, and I got into the, the metro and like uh, when I saw, um, when anyone, like I saw the people and I got them, um, an impression of who to sit with and the one who I prefer the most is the one who I was going to sit with. Mm. And well... Sorry, the um, creator? No, I, I don't know the, the creator. Do you know it? Uh, okay, I'm agree with you, but in a while I will tell you who was a creator and more information about you, okay? Okay, that's fine. Now I will tell you my point of view about impressions and another case. First of all, us was a creator who defined first impression and their form in 1946. He creates a model. I consider the notion of impression like a picture in the mind caused by, by something external, way of dressing and expressing or behaviors, way of walking, facial gestures, movements. These details give us some thoughts or ideas about the person. Moreover, non-verbal communication, such, such as to game, give us more future about the person. For example, if a girl beats her nails, it means she's stressed or getting nervous. After this, I'm suggesting a game to play everybody. Andrea, Danny, Nicole and me. What were the impressions which we gave you the first day of a university? Andrea? Well, I thought that, for example, Danny was so shy, but now I know that he's not a shy person at all. Uh, Nicole? Um, the first time I met Andrea, I thought she was a mean person and lonely, but after this past month, she has proven me that I was wrong and sometimes first impressions are wrong. Um, Danny, for something? <coughs> well, I think of you and I know, for example, that well, I didn't really know you, I knew Carolina and you went uh, very much with Carolina. So what I know of you uh, was through Carolina. Then Nicole, for example, as she has features like Latin American features, I thought that she would have more accent. And later on, I, um, I, um, I well, uh, she told me that she uh, she's Peruan. So, uh, but she doesn't have a um, really strong accent. And she, she has turned out to be uh, really nice and 
really sympathetic girl. And lastly, um, Andrea. Well, I I thought at first that she was very shy, and it turned out she she turned out to be really shy. But it doesn't matter because I got to knew her um, uh, during the past uh, during the last uh, for more than four months. So um, she um, she's proven me that she's a really nice girl, which uh, with whom you can. Uh, have nice conversations and 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 that's it really. Okay, um, from my point of view, there are many people in class, so around seven five. And so in general, my day about you was a group who always were together in class. So anything else? And the last game is about choosing your favorite song. And we will see the different impression which music gives us depends on its style. This fact will give us some information about each one of us. Uh, for example, Nicole, uh, what is your favorite song and what is its style and what do you like? Uh, well, I will, I will say my favorite song is uh, Missy Business by Paramore. Uh, it's a kind of rock song and I like the song because it opened a whole new world uh, to me in music mostly. Uh, that was the year before um, they went here in Spain uh, doing a concert and I I like them because thanks to them I know a lot of whole, uh, new music right now. Okay, and uh, Danny. Well, I like Reggaeton Lento of um, CNCO because I think it's a really hip song and I it hit uh, really hard on the top lists of um, most listened, listened songs in Spain. Uh, it went viral uh, really fast and I understand why because it's, um, it's a song you can really dance to and it's really enjoyable. I really enjoy it and the lyrics are really catchy and you can remember them really easily and and I really like it and with my friends I dance to it uh, to the song and and we have a lot of fun Okay, Andrea, what is your favorite song? Well, my favorite song is Set Fire to the Rain by Adele. It's a pop song, but I really love it because it's a really nice song. Okay, uh, well, my favorite song is uh, Green Valley. It's a group with four members. Uh, they have a reggae style, and I really like its lyric because they talk about society's problems, and they, had, they have a good rhythm. La vida va, la vida viene, eh, puedes ganar o perder, lo importante es aprender. 
So good. Mm, okay. Uh, thank you for your collaboration, guys, and I really liked you a lot. Next point, I will talk about stereotypes. Nowadays, physical appearance is one of the elements more relevant when you meet someone. There are many kinds of stereotypes in a society. What is the meaning of stereotypes? There is an association, thoughts or image of a person or a social group with a consistent set of traits. It can be positive or negative judgment. There, there were usually negative but not always. Several examples are the following. All Spanish people are lazy. All Americans have guns. Chinese people eat always rice. All women are bad drivers. Or Irish girl had, has blonde hair and blue or green eyes. There are three factors which make stereotypes. Physical appearance behavior and attitudes and one question guys where is the most important factor when you meet someone and why for example physical appearance attitudes his or her thoughts money etc nicole uh, well uh, i think it's impossible to try to avoid a first impression uh, based on uh, the way they look, but I think the most important thing to me is getting to know the person and see what we have in common. Uh, even uh, we have same goals, same kind of uh, taste of music, or we enjoy the same movies or TV shows, and what we enjoy doing on our free time. Um, and you, I know what are your thoughts on this? Uh, from my point of view, physical appearance is important, but it's more important for me to be mature, clear ideas, goals, common things, and uh, behavior. And now, uh, for example, if you see two girls, one of them, Mary, is a beautiful and thin girl who is talking really loud and her vocabulary is not correct and polite, and the another girl called Charlotte is less beautiful than Mary, but her personality is similar like you. She's walking at the, at the street, laughing, and dressing in style wash fashion. Who would like to be a date? Why reason, Danny Andrea? Well, um, I would choose Mary because uh, this is really funny because I had a girlfriend who is similar to who was similar to her. And really, I learned to accept her because you can judge you cannot judge um, people by the, the appearance. And for example, if you um, judge someone by its appear by his or her appearance, and maybe um, you can miss um, like um, a really good person because you just dismiss them. But uh, you two thinking, um, oh, um, I don't like this person, and I just saw her uh, or him, and I, or I just listened to him or her. That doesn't really make sense to me. Okay, but for me, the first impression is very important, so I will choose Charlotte. Yeah, really, that's another point of view, but really, you have to be considerate and you have to give second chances. Like, everybody deserves a second chance, 
uh, even this girl Mary, um, because you can discover a really nice person if you give the opportunity to get to know someone and get to engage in conversations with them and really know them because um, because you can't you cannot really know one uh, someone and you cannot really um, like uh, make a conclusion up just with the um, just by just by like with such sup superficial things like just by seeing him or her or listening to him or her well i think it's very difficult to give another chance to know someone when the first impression i got of him or her was so awful i could not consider giving him or her a second chance that is also another way of thinking true but maybe the person who you dislike Uh, just uh, by the first impression, maybe he or she is interpreting a facade, like he or he is, play is playing a role, is not really his or her personality, like, because you maybe uh, put, you an ex uh, put you as an example, you are not the same maybe in public or in the university as you are amongst your friends or in, or in your house with your family. Well, okay, I will think about it. Um, um, finally, oh, for sure, uh, thank you guys because you have been really participated and it has been very interesting. And to conclude, I am going to finish with a great sentence. Um, a beautiful face doesn't mean anything without a beautiful heart. Oh, that's really beautiful. Then do you like? Yeah. Oh, oh. Hello, now we are going to explain a little bit causal attributions. And as always, let's start with a brief definition of this topic. The definition that is given to the term attribute from the social psychology point of view is to give an explanation for our own behavior and for other people's behavior. Causal attribution concerns the explanations people offer about the causes of their own or other people's behavior. It has contributed to an understanding of emotion as well as people's reactions to failures and the reasons that they give for those failures. Now that we have a general idea of the topic, let's get deep into, into it. And to do so, I'm going to need the help of all of you guys, Andrea, Danny, and Ainoa. So let's start. Causal attribution can be divided in four kinds. The first one will be attribution as perception. So let's explain the situation, okay? Suppose, suppose that uh, Ringo repays a loan from Paul on time. What would you think of Ringo? I would think that he is a guy in who you can trust or even rely on. I agree with you, Danny, that can prove us who Ringo is. If he doesn't pay the loan back on time, I don't think I could loan him money other time. That is, guys, we always base what we are going to do on a previous experience. If Ringo asks again for money, I would probably give it to him, but if he doesn't pay it on time, I would certainly wouldn't take the risk. Well, according to this characteristic, if Paul concludes 
Mr. Ringo is trustworthy, he may help him again when the need arises, or feel comfortable to trust Ringo in other ways, as when confiding a piece of gossip about, about George. The repayment of a loan is likely seen as an intentional act, especially when there are no signs that the person was coerced. Haydar suggests that an attribution of intentionality can be made with, the, with little thought, much like the visual perception of objects is largely automatic. In social perception, the person and the behavior form a perceptual unit and thereby suggest a causal connection. Experiments have shown that the observation of a behavior that implies a certain, a certain personality trait makes that trait mentally accessible, whereas the person behavior unit is figural in social perception. The situation is usually the background. Compared with a person, a situation is typical, typically not well organized perceptually. It can comprise the presence of other people, current modes, the weather, or the time of day, only when a particular aspect of a situation commands attention, such as the treat of penalty in the loan example. Can situational attributions become more prominent? The attribution of an intentional and thus personal causation is further if the actor Exert effort. If we learn that Ringo recently took a second job, we feel more confident about his intention to repay the loan. In general, if a person appears to go the extra mile to produce a desired effect, people attribute the behavior to a conscious goal. Okay, now let's get into the second kind of attribution, and that will be the attribution as inference. In 1965, Edward Jones and Kate Davis proposed the moral formal theory of correspondent interference. They stressed that attribution of intentionality depends on the impression that the actor freely chooses what to do. There had to be alternative options as well as a lack of situ situational pressures, such as coercion by others. A chosen opinion is most, most informative if its alternative differ in their consequences, and if the person was able to foresee these consequences. For example, we can learn about Ringo's intentions from what he did with the money he borrowed. Suppose he had the option of buying a low mower, a new computer, or a cruise for his wife. Which one uh, would you guys prefer? I rather don't know why he asked me the money. If I didn't make questions when he asked for the loan, I certainly am in no position to judge in what he spent his, uh, the money. So answering the question, the three options will be fine with me. I rather think or know that he spent the money in a new computer because that would mean if he's focused in his work and need the computer to improve his performance performance so in a way I'm helping him with his work his life I will have to disagree with you guys I would rather think he's been in in his wife so it would be less material and I would have helped two people instead of just one okay choosing the last option 
is most informative because it has the unique consequence of affirming an important personal relationship. The question of free choice became a watershed issue for all attribution theories because it most clearly separates personal from situation causes. Original Jones and his colleagues believe that people will discount personal explanation if a behavior was externally constrained. In a famous experiment in 1967, Jones and Victor Harris found, however, that people thought a person who, in compliance with an experimenter's request, had written an essay in praise of Fidel Castro privately had held pro-Castro attitudes. The tendency to make interference about the person even when the situation could fully explain the behavior was henceforth called the correspondence bias, or more evocatively, the fundamental attribution error. The evidence for, a, for quick and potential bias in, inference suggests that people make use of perceptual shortcuts, just as Heather had suspected. Some of these shortcuts are self-serving. People really, uh, really attribute success and other positive events to their own efforts or enduring qualities. Although self-serving biases are suspect from a normative point of view, they have adapted benefits. People who attribute success to their own ability and their failures. To bad luck are less likely to be depressed and more likely to persevere after setbacks. These biases are truly self-serving only if they are unique to self-perspective. That is, if the favorable explanatory pattern does not affect explanation of the behavior or outcome of others. So the third kind of attribution will be attribution as induction. Perception and interference regarding regarding intentionality and causality can involve a fair amount of guesswork. Their quality depends on the perceiver, ability to make reasonable assumptions to make up for missing information. Harold Kelly suggests that attributions are a certain kind of inductive, indic, inductive interference. That is, people induce a probable probable cause from available information. Following the British empiricists and particularly John Stuart Mill's joint method of agreement and difference, Kelly proposed that an event, for example, behavior is attributed to whichever potential cause is present when the event is present and that is absent when the event is absent. In Kelly's scheme, there are three sources of variability. Variability over actor is called consensus. Consensus is low. If only ring, Ringo, but no one else, repays his loan, it suggests that Ringo, but not Paul, should be credited as the source of Ringo behavior. Variability over stimuli is called distinctiveness. Distinctiveness is high. If Ringo only repays Paul, but not George, suggesting that Paul has some control over Ringo's behavior. Finally, variability over time is called consistency. Consistency is high if the behavior occurs repeatedly 
as when, for example, Ringo always repays his loan by self-consistent. Behavior does not reveal much about its likely cause. If, however, consensus or distinctiveness information already suggests a particular attribution, high consistency makes this attribution more certain. A full suite of information concerning consensus, distinctiveness, and consistency is called a configuration. On the basis of such a configuration, a social perceiver can decide whether to attribute a behavior to the person, to the stimulus, to the particular relationship within the two, or to the circumstances prevailing at the time, which, with each of the two types of information being either high or low, a different configuration are possible. The configuration of low consensus, low distinctiveness, and high consistency of all the strongest person attribution. The configuration of high consensus, high distinctiveness, and high consistency affords the strongest stimulus attribution. Over the years, numer numerous refinements to Kelly model have been introduced. The goal of this effort has been to identify unique predictions for each possible configuration and to validate this prediction with empirical data about how social perceivers actually make attribution. And let's finish with this kind of attribution that, that will be the, for, the fourth and last one, and is attribution as construction. The probabilistic construct model, model is conceptual, elegant, mathematically rigorous, and empirically well supported. However, the price for the model recession is a lack of realism. The Shen and Novik model, as well as other theories of inductive interference, faces several critical issues, which set the agenda for current and future refinements of attribution theory. The first issue is that ordinary social perceivers rarely have enough information to evaluate configuration of evidence. To make attribution, they must exploit direct perceptual inference, inference based on partial cues or common social background knowledge. Recent integrative model address this problem by combining aspects of the full psychological approach with the statistical reason approach. The second issue is that sources of information are really independent. Behavior love in distinctiveness also tends to be highly consistent because people enter different situations sequentially. To untangle distinctiveness from consistency, they must figure out which situation they can treat as identical and how they can mentally correct the conflation of different situation with different times. Formal statistical tools can do this with numerical data, but ordinary intuition is not equipped to handle this task. The third issue is that trade attribution once made do not contribute much to causal explanation of behavior. Because we believe that Ringo is trustworthy, this characteristic is of his becomes a mere enabling condition because it is always there.
as a trait, trustworthiness is by definition a constant feature and therefore cannot vary. To explain a particularly trustworthy act, some additional costs must be involved. When the additional cost is an aspect of the situation, a pe pe peculiar shortcoming of a standard attribution theory emerges. Since the day of Hader's theory, personal and situa situational costs have been treated as competitive. Kelly's famous discounting principle states that the stronger the situational cost is, the weaker the personal cost must be. The assumption of a high dualic relationship between personal and situational cost must be. The assumption of a hydraulic relationship between personal and situational cost may not be realistic. People who react aggressively to provocation, for example, are seen as having aggressive personality, whereas people who aggress without provocation are more likely seen as disturbed. Contrary to this classic logic, a situational stimulus can enable a disposition attribution rather than inhibited. The final and most fundamental issue is that the pattern of cooperation never proves causation. One can show that a given cooperation is not causal, but no one cannot prove that a cooperation is not causal. Educated people do not believe that the crowing of a roster call for the dawn of a new day even if it consistently preceded. There is no known mechanism that links the two. In contrast, if a comedian cracks are always followed by virtuous lover, one can exam examine the specific properties of the joke as mediating variables and note the fact that the intervals between jokes can be varied at will. With this characteristic, the characteristics are done. And now I'm going to explain the main approaches, which we already talked about in this characteristic, but I want to get a little bit more deep into. So, let's go. So, the theory of attribution started in 1960. This theory focuses on social inference. There are the process in which a relationship is established between the new information and the pre-existing information. In order to study these processes, we need to search in deep the logic that characterizes the ordinary thinking. One of the main uh, men who did a research on this was Hader. He started his theory of attribution from the study of social perception. This theory tries to try to explain how up from observation of conduct and external appearance we build characteristic intention edition and how we interpret the world in which we live in. For Hefston and Antaki, the most important thing that Hitler proposed was that the actions were divided into the personal or international action and the external or environmental action. The relationship between these two actions is really interesting because it can be applied to many problems. These problems can be intervened depending on the consideration which is made 
This theory was a starting point for the later theories. Correspondent inference theory was created by Jones and Davis based on Hader's model. The process of attribution has a goal that he observed, conduct, and the cause correspond to a causality of the subject. The perceptual will use another principle, the non-common effects principle, which analyzes the effects of all the alternatives of the actor. The motivational aspects are two. The first one is hedonic relevance, the positive and negative aspect of the election of the author for the perception. And the second one will be personalism. If the perceptor believes that the consequences of the action are aimed at them, Mm. Another contribution Hayden made was cooperation model, though it was created by Harold Kelly. He pretended to systemize and generalize Hayden's ideas in order to apply them to other fields to social psychology. So in um, one way, Hayden kind of created but not this model. Uh, Car- Harold Kelly deduced this model from the causal locus, making bigger the relationship between the actor and the environment, creating two environmental causes. The first one will be the internal stimuli, which is addressed to the answer, and the second one will be the external circumstances which surround the process. Though we already explained this, I'm going to explain a little bit more in case it's not clear yet. Back up. Arthur tested this model and observed that some types of people make causal attribution. The first one will be the actor that usually behaves that way in situation consistency. The second one will be the actor that behaves differently in different situations and that will be distinctiveness. And the third one will be the people that behave the same as the actor in the same situation consensus. Uh, stable causes when high consistency, high distinctness, and high consistency attribution to the stimulus. If high consistency, low distinctness, and low consensus attribution to the actor, and unstable causes when low consistency and high distinctness and low consensus are attribution to the circumstances. Causal schema are used when people create causal attribution from limited information. These schemas are theories and beliefs extracted from experience. Now, since this is a podcast for education uh, for teachers, one of the main attributions in education about this topic was made by Rudder Theory in 1966. The, the individual tried to have a positive Self-esteem attributing their triumphs to an internal cause and their failures to an external cause. However, Weiner says that not only internal and external causes affect self-esteem, because we also have to take into account other dimensions, stability and control. In this way, each of the causes can fall into any of the three dimensions, and these dimensions come together from high, height, height, combination. The most important combination for Weiner are the first two. Um, that will be the first one, the point at which the cause of the internal and external force. 
influencing the self-esteem, attributing school success to student um, effort reinforces self-esteem. But if we attribute success to an external cause, we are generating gratitude. On the other hand, if execution ends in failure, if we attribute it to an internal factor, we can produce guilt. But if I attribute it to an external cause, it will generate frustration. And the second will be the point where the cause falls in the dimension of stability. Instability influences expectation of change. Assigning failures to the cause will imply a failure in the future, but if attributed to an unstable factor, the future may change for either success or failure. Another important research that has an impact in education will be Wex's research. This theory was evident in where was developed in 1975 and invest, uh, was an investigation with the student in the classroom. Dweck entered a student who was unsuccessful in attributing his failure to lack of effort. In this way, Dweck gave them instruction on how to interpret the cause of their failure. This result in the student persisting in the task in which he had previously failed to see straight. Finally, Drake and Gods applied the different feedbacks, studying the different treatment of the teacher towards the two different sexes, concluding that the teacher transmitted mainly a negative feedback to the masculine sex before the feminine one. And now let's go we I'm going to explain the last main point in this topic and that will be attributional biases that occurs due to the strong tendency to explain the action of others placing them in internal cause rather than external cause. The first theory will be of the theory of Fix and Taylor in 1991 and they have two characteristics. The, the first will be the role refers to a deviation from the main rule in which only one correct answer can be possible and the second one will be the bias is a systematic distortion. Another attributional biases was by Snyder in 1981. When we have to make a causal judgment, we gather information that confirms our previous hypothesis. This is called confirmation tendency that has three different strategies. The first one will be searching for information that provides that our hypothesis is true. The, sec the second one will be gather information and bias it in order to make our hypothesis true. And the third one will be asking and seeking information that leads one to think that the previous hypothesis is probably more true than it actually is. The second, the third attributional biases was made by, by Ross and Fletcher in 1985 and is called egocentric tendency. The egocentric tendency is an overvaluation of the contribution to an achievement, achievement over the others. Uh, one of the main aspects was calling and decoding information that has itself divided in four 
Um, the first one will be the subject pay more attention to his action and thoughts. The second will be the information of the subject it analyzes in a careful and detailed way. The third will be by the influence of previous previous expectations. And the fourth will be due to motivational factor such as self-esteem. And the last one will be the fastest consensus tendency by Ross and this was made in around 1981. The point of view we share became generalized for the whole world. What causes this bias? There are three main points. The first one will be dangerous situation, the second one will be intergroup context and the third one will be when it refers to important topic of the subject. Now with this, I have finished speaking about my topic and I hope it is clear and as always, if you have any doubt, you can leave it and um, um, we will try to explain it any other time. Now, let's go with another topic that's going to be explained by my colleague, Danny. So, now I'm going to talk about social motivation and the first part is definition. Motivation refers to the internal forces that push an organism towards its objectives of, bi of, of biological social prosperity. The motivated behavior of an individual is the product of its internal and external environment. The motivation is composed of a factor of intensity and another of quality. The former refers to the degree of stiffness and determination that characterizes the motivation of each one of us. This factor ranges from absolutely apathy to extreme responsiveness. Depending on how much time does one feel motivated, the intensity of the motivation can be classified in phasic or tonic dimension. The former takes place in specific moments uh, when the individual sees itself allured by an objective, though that reaction is brief. On the other hand, we have the tonic dimension, which is, describes a prolonged state during which an individual feels attracted to an objective, though it is required a greater de de um, dedication to be achieved. Here we have an athlete, an athlete who, uh, who can tell us uh, about his, his experience and how it can relate to the, this topic uh, of the phasic and tonic dimension. To put an example, let us imagine an athlete whose prime objective is to reach the finish line. In order for the athlete to get there, be all to spend a big amount of energy and concentration. This phase of motivation is the tonic dimension. Whereas if the runner in the second position turns the first athlete, this may recur to the phasic dimension of motivation so as, so as to outturn them, even though it is just a sporadic and ephemeral motivation. The second factor of motivation is the quality or, or direction, which refers to the selection of objectives towards which the individual will spend its energies. Depending on whether the individual has a motivated attitude or if it is usually motivated, uh, we will distinguish between motivational state or motivational feature. Motivation is highly influenced not only by, by intrinsic forces within us, but of extrinsic too. In this way, a person may feel motivated by internal motives, although related in great measure to external events. In relation to this topic, I conducted an experiment in, 
intended to test the persistence of a hungry rat to get some food. When the motivation appears, that is the anger, the rat finds a way to obtain some aliment. We displayed a system which dispensed a piece of cheese when the rat pushed a button. The rat will persist in its eagerness to obtain food. Thus, it will press the button as many times as it takes so there can be cheese. In spite of this, there is another way of thinking that states that persistence is not a valid future of motivation due to the fact to achieve a goal, the object only disposed of one way of doing this. In the case of the previously mentioned experiment, the pressing of the button. True, that though, from other perspective, we can think that no matter which is the method by which we do accomplish our goal, we will be persistent to do it. Thank you very much. Um, persistence is praised in our meritorious society. Those who make an effort will be rewarded and cheered. Those who insist upon the completion of their objectives will be encouraged. Either way, persistence may bring negative shades. By this, I mean that one may turn out incapable to achieve their goals even though they have tried very hard to do it. Dr. Thayer made a classification of the activation in energetic activation and tense activation. These thoughts answer the question of what emotions activate motivation in us. Depending on how much motivated we feel, its cause may be bigger energy or vitality, or fatigue or tiredness, or any other feeling among, the, among these. Tense activation is characterized by the evasion or taking of precautions inside of a real or imaginary danger. Now I'm going to explain the second characteristic of motivation, which is direction. In addition of motivational activation, there also exists the directionality, which refers to the evolution of the activated behavior of each individual. It is interesting to study this development due to the variety of alternatives that exist in our daily lives to achieve our goals. Um, here we have two psychologists who will explain us um, an experiment conducted in the 50s by John Green and uh, the perspective of Aaron Beck uh, about uh, the, the biological necessities. Okay, um, this is interesting for psychologists too. See, in our fields of knowledge, we use the preference test to conclude which of the proposed alternative will motivate the most our subject of study. For example, let us recall an, a now classic experiment conducted in 15th century by John and Green. They presented a little number of rats with several recipients in, in which there was a different sugar saturation. Expectedly, the rats chose the, the most saturated recipient after trying the other ones because the sugar containing polysaccharides and which activated the segregation of dopamine in their hormonal system, creating in them a sense of pleasure. Relating to the topic of our necessities, I feel obliged to mention Aaron Beck, whose thesis explained the correctness of differenti differentiating between the biological necessities and the necessities that transcend this and aim for goals more complex than the regulation of the biological variables of an organism. It seems to me ironic 
the contrariness between certain biological necessi necessities and the influence that exerts society and culture upon us. We might not be thirsty, but if we are at a party and the rest is drinking, chances are you will drink as well. Thank you very much. The individual is practically always with a minimum level of motivation. In so far, we never give up trying to achieve whatever or trying to avoid whatever. In the process of attainment, we encounter two key factors, the expectancy of attainment and the attraction degree of the objective. With, rega with regards to the former, if the objective is found close to the subject and remains as attractive as it was when the subject first got interested in it, there will be a high chance that it will be pursued. If on the contrary, the objective is afar, no matter how attractive it looks, little by little, the individual will lose interest in it. The second factor refers to the tendency of value loss to the individual as time passes by. Thus, the individual loses motivation to achieve it. Now I'm going to talk about the types of social motives. The first one is the achievement motivation. This is defined as the sort of motivation more or less stable to achieve a goal that will be compared to an excellence standard. This threshold can be conceived in three ways. As the achievement of the activity in itself, which brings satisfaction of work well done, uh, or you want to demonstrate an ability, or etc. In relation to oneself, to achieve self-improvement, or to surpass the others. Adding, the motivation is correlated with sentiment of pride when the intended goal is achieved and uh, as is achieved, and shame when one fails in trial. There are eight characteristics which people with uh, which people with high achievement motivation share. They bias towards activities of moderate difficulty with a moderate success probability. Their performance will be increased if the activity due to be done requires intrinsic motivation. Therefore. The individual will feel proud of its work well done. In fact, it has been proven that external reinforcements do not improve their performance. Their performance will improve in tasks that represent a personal challenge. In other way, daily or intuitive activities will be accomplished in the same way they could get done by a person with low or average achievement motivation. They feel interested in obtaining feedback about their performance and outcomes so as to look for a way to improve. They are responsible for their action. They assume affordable risks so long as it puts them closer to their objective. They innovate in their way of carrying out tasks to find new methods to do them. This may turn out as counterproductive because there are some who use methods of doubtful validity and are labeled as cheaters. Take the initiative to achieve their professional goals so long as their com completion implies affordable risk. These people are likely to work in business matters and entrepreneuring. Now I'm going to talk about the second social motive, which is power motivation. This is defined as the desire to exert control over people their behavior or and emotions. Many terms such as coercion, aggression, state status or control are related to people with high power motivation. Constantly controlling people, co uh, constantly controlling those who surround you is a stress in business. In fact, controlling people are likelier than non-controlling people to suffer from infections and respiratory diseases and cardiovascular problems. So as to understand this, we must define the sympathetic nervous system. Here we have a neurologist 
a specialist in in the in the nervous system which will explain us this term to us maybe i can answer to that the function of the sympathetic nervous system is alerting the body is in a stressful or active situation the system accelerates the heart beat rate and the breathing in that way they provide the muscles of or the brain with the blood and oxygen needed to execute a function under certain pressure As an example, let's think of a good student right before a final exam or an athlete seconds before running for his country in the finals of a worldwide championship. Once we have understood this term, the vulnerability of controlling people resides in the abuse of the sympathetic nervous system, which reduces the efficacy of the immune system, which is in, with, which is in charge of protecting the body from external pathogens. And now we're going to talk about the last topic, which is about attitudes. So first thing first, in psychology, an attitude is a psychological construct. It is a mental and emotional entity that inheres in or characterizes a person. They are complex and an acquired state through experience. It is an individual's predisposed state of mind regarding a value and it is precipitate through a responsive expression toward a person, place, thing, or event, which in turn influence individuals through an action. So, the characteristics will be the evaluation, memory, precedence, and consistent, the valency, which is the degree of affection that wakes the object of the attitude up, the determined thing or not that is the subject of experiencing this attitude, the multiplicity, which is the number of knowledge that integrates the cognitive system. An attitude refers to feelings and beliefs of individuals or group of individuals. The feelings and beliefs are directed towards other people, objects, or idea. When a person says, I like my job, for example, it shows that he has a positive attitude towards his job. Attitudes are evaluative statements, either favorable or unfavorable. When a person says he likes or dislikes something or somebody, an attitude is being expressed. Attitudes are gradually acquired over a period of time. The process of learning attitude starts right from the childhood and continues throughout the life. So, now we can talk about the functions. The functions of attitudes being in the necessity of comprehending why people act in certain ways. There are four function bases of attitudes. First one could be the adaptive function. It's when people try to obtain the highest benefits in their relationships with the outside world and minimize the uncomfortable situations. Defensive or mindset of myself function. That is the second one. It's when we have already reached the highest performance of the outside world and then we focus on the inside in accepting ourselves. This makes you behave in two different ways. Which are the next one? You stay in the situation, but your attitudes let your process or focus this in others, or you run away from the situation. The third one is the expressive function of values. This attitude has the function of to let people know the values and the kind of person they believe to be. The fourth one is the cognoscitive or economic function. 
people need to search information about what they are surrounded because if they do not do it, they feel like if the world were disorganized. One singular attitude can achieve different functions for different persons. One singular attitude can be useful for more than one attitude for the same person. The functions of one singular attitude can be also changed on the time and be useful for a person in many different ways in different moments. We can affirm that the attitudes are multifunctional. So, attitudes serve for major functions for the individual. The adjustments function, the ego-defensive function, the value-expressive function, the knowledge function. Ultimately, these functions serve people's needs to protect and enhance the image they hold of themselves. In more general terms, these functions are the motivational basis which shape and reinforce positive attitudes towards goal objects perceived as need-satisfying and or negative attitudes toward other, be other objects perceived as punishing or threatening. The functions themselves can help us to understand why people hold the attitudes they do toward psychological objects. Okay, so the adjustment function. The adjustment function directs people towards pleasurable or rewarding objects and away from unpleasant and desirable ones. It serves the utilitarian concept of maximizing rewards and minimizing punishment. Thus, the attitudes of consumers depend to a large degree on their perceptions of what is needed, satisfying, and what is punishing. Because consumers perceive products, service, and stores are providing as providing need satisfying on or unsatisfying experience, we should accept, expect their attitudes toward these objects to vary in relation to the experience that have occurred. The ego defensive function. Attitudes firm to protect the ego or self-image from threats help fulfill the ego defensive function. Actually, many outward expressions of such attitudes reflect the opposite of what the person perceives him to be. For example, a consumer who has made a poor purchase decision or a poor investment may staunchly defend the decision as being correct at the time or as being the result of poor advice from another person. Such ego-defensive attitude helps us to protect our self-image and often we are unaware of them. Okay, so the value expression function. Various ego-defensive attitudes are formed to protect a person's self-image. Value-expressive attitudes enable the expression of the person's centrally held values. Therefore, consumers adopt certain attitudes in, in an effort to translate their values into something more tangible and easily expressed. Thus, a conservative person might develop an unfavorable unfavorable attitude toward bright clothing and instead be attracted toward dark pain stripped sheets. Marketers should develop an understanding of what values consumers wish to express about themselves and they should design products and promotional campaigns to allow this self-expression. Not all products lend themselves to this form of market segmentation, however. Those with the greatest potential for value-expressive 
segmentation are ones with high social visibility. So the knowledge function. Humans have a need for a structured and orderly world, and therefore they seek consistency, stability, definition, and understanding. Out of this need develops attitudes toward acquiring knowledge. In addition, the need of the need to know tends to be specific. Therefore, an individual who does not play golf nor wish to learn the sport is unlikely to seek knowledge or an understanding of the game. This will influence the amount of information search devoted to this topic. Thus, out of our need to know some attitudes about what we believe we need or do not need to understand. In addition, attitudes enable consumers to simplify the complexity of the real world. That is, as we point out in the chapter Information Processing, the real world is too complex for us to cope with, so we develop mechanisms to simplify situations. We saw that this involves sensory thresholds and selective attention, and it also involves attitudes. Attitudes allows us to categorize or group objects as a way of knowledge about them. Thus, when a new object is experienced, we attempt to categorize it into a group which we know something about. In this way, the object can share the relations we have for other objects in the same category. This is efficient because we do not have to spend much effort reacting to each new object as a completely unique situation. Consequently, we often find consumers reacting in similar ways to ads for going out of business sales limit time efforts. Of course, there is some risk of error in not looking at the unique aspect or new information about objects, but for better or worse, our attitudes have influenced how we feel and react to new examples of these situations. So, we are doing it well, and we can talk now about the formation. There are a number of factors that can influence how and why attitudes form. Experience. Attitudes form directly as a result of experience. They may emerge due to direct personal experience or they may result from observation. Social factors. Social roles and social norms can have a strong influence on attitudes. Social roles relate to how people are expected to behave in a particular role or context. Social norms involve society's rules for what behaviors are considered appropriate. And there is the learning. Attitudes can be learned in a variety of ways. Consider how advertisers use classical conditioning to influence your attitude toward a particular product. In a television commercial, you see young, beautiful people having fun in, on a tropical beach while enjoying a sports drink. This attractive and appealing imagery causes you to develop a positive association with this particular behavior. Operant conditioning can also be used to influence how attitudes develop. Imagine a young man who has just started smoking. Whenever he lights up a cigarette, people complain, just him and ask him to leave their vicinity. This negative feedback from those around him eventually causes him to develop an unfavorable opinion of smoking and he decides to give up the habit. Finally, People also learn attitudes by observing the people around them. When someone you admire greatly expose a particular attitude, 
you are more likely to develop the same beliefs. For example, children spend a great deal of time observing the attitudes of their parents and usually begin to demonstrate similar outlooks. There is not an exit period in our life to know when a person starts to acquire its attitude. They are adopted during our life. Newcomb argues that attitudes have its origin in aesthetic motives. Those motives are acquired through discrimination between objectives and the environment, and it can be obtained in any evolutionary stage. A trend is attached to the extinction of a discomfort. This creates an acquired trend which leads a certain behavior to some object or situation. During the process of differentiation and progressive integration, the attitudes are shaped in people. Attitudes are not clearly differentiated in the first stage. There may be some confusion between the favorable and the unfavorable psychosocial factors that determine attitudes and the learning process involved. Katz said that there is, a, there is influence of the group's norms in the formation of attitudes. Primary groups are those which have more influence in its creation. Sources of pressure help the member of the group to decision and in the defense of behaviors. This pressure is effective depending on the level of identification with the rest of the group. Attitudes are also influenced by the dichotomy between genetic and psychological con constraints and environmental stimulation. Lore and, stat and stats prove with their experience the learning of attitude by classical conditioning. From the association of words with positives and negative meanings to syllables without any sense. This learning is also used with certain attitudes associated with positive or negative effects. Hildum and Brown and Inskill experience prove the learning of attitudes by instrumental conditioning, using reinforced verbal answers to, to students, questioning them later about academic activities and events. In the form formation of attitude, it's very important to distinguish between these ones and in the conduct because when a conduct is reinforced, it helps to the creation of a new attitude. Albert Bandura argues about the learning of attitudes by social learning. According to this, this author, it is not necessary for a person to receive an instrumental or classical reinforcement for a response be remembered in its behavior. We tend to assume that people behave according to their attitudes. However, social psychologists have found that attitudes are an actual behavior and not always perfectly aligned. After all, plenty of people support a particular candidate or political party and yet fail to go out and vote. There are some factors that influence attitude strength. Researchers have discovered that people are more likely to behave according to their attitudes under certain conditions. When your attitudes are the result of personal experience, when you are an expert in the subject, when you expect a favorable outcome, when the attitudes are repeatedly expressed, when you stand to win or lose something due to the issue. And now we can start talking about the change. A person changes his attitude when 
he is no longer able to achieve the goals he in intended. When someone performs an attitude which is not seen correctly by others, will have a bad effect on that individual and he will have two options, change that attitude or abandon the situation. But if running away from the situation is not effective because that individual does not get the benefits he expects, he will have to change the attitude in the sense that others expect him. A change of attitude is a variation that undergoes a person's attitude either in its in intensity or in its sign. The variation in the sign or intensity of the attitude may be congruent or incongruent. Congruent means that it goes from positive to more positive or from negative to more negative. Incongruous means that it goes from negative to positive or to positive to negative. So you all must know that there are some different theories. The first one could be the reinforcement theory. Reinforcement theory of motivation was proposed by B.F. Skinner and his associates. It states that individual's behavior is a function of its consequences. It is based on law of effect. Individual's behavior with positive consequences tends to be repeated, but individual's behavior with negative consequences tends not to be repeated. Reinforcement theory of motivation overlooks the internal state of individual. The inner feelings and drives of individuals are ignored by Skinner. This theory focuses totally on what happens to an individual when he takes some action. Thus, according to Skinner, the external environment of the organization must be designed effectively and possibly, possibly so as to motivate the employee. This theory is a strong tool for analyzing and controlling mechanisms for individuals' behavior. However, it does not focus on the causes of individuals' behavior. The managers use the following methods for controlling the behavior of the employees. The positive reinforcement, which implies giving a positive response when an individual shows positive and required behavior, for example, in the immediately praising as an employee for coming early for a job. There's the negative reinforcement, which implies rewarding an employee by removing negative undesirable consequences. Both positive and negative reinforcement can be used for increasing desirable or required behavior. The punishment it implies removing positive consequences so as to lower the probability of repeating undesirable behavior in future. In other words, punishment means applying undesirable consequences for showing undesirable behavior. And there is the extinction which implies absence of reinforcement. In other words, extinction implies lowering the probability of undesired behavior by removing toward for that kind of behavior. And there's the equilibrium theory. The concept of equilibrium plays an important role in diverse domains of psychology. At a basic psychological level, an organism strives to regulate drives and to maintain homeostasis, that is psychological equilibrium. On an emotional level, people work to balance the distance of the dictates of competing desires and instincts. At a more cognitive and social level, people strive to reconcile 
discrepancies among different types of through behavior and attitude. The existence of competing drives, conflicts, and inconsistencies leads to the need to restore equilibrium when a system is out of balance. Because of the diversity of meanings of equilibrium, psychologists use the term in ways and in contexts that may vary substantially. For instance, the regulatory drives associated with hunger and thirst bear little resemblance to the experience of holding two mutually incons inconsistent attitudes that must be reconciled. The glue that binds them is the need to maintain a balance. It is the basic need that gives the construct of equilibrium its central role in explaining human and non-human behavior at multiple levels. Equilibrium is very important in some different psychological perspectives that we already talked about in our previous podcast, like humanistic and psychodynamic. So, there is the theory of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors. This produces a feeling of discomfort leading to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce the discomfort and restore balance, etc. For example, when people smoke, which is a behavior, and they know that smoking causes cancer, which is the cognition, Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory suggests that we have an inner drive to hold all our attitudes and beliefs in harmony and avoid disharmony or dissonance. Attitudes may change because of factors within the person. An important factor here is the principle of cognitive consistency, the focus of Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance. This theory starts from the idea that we seek Consistency, consistency in our beliefs and attitudes in any situation where two cognitions are inconsistent. So, Leon Festinger proposed cognitive dissonance theory, which states that a powerful motive to maintain cognitive consistency can give rise to irrational and sometimes maladaptive uh, behavior. According to Festinger, we hold many cognitions about the world and ourselves, When they clash, a discrepancy is evoked, resulting in a state of tension known as cognitive dissonance. As the experience of dissonance is unpleasant, we are motivated to reduce or eliminate it and achieve consonance. So, cognitive dissonance was first investigated by Leon Festinger, arising out of a participant observation study of a cult which believed that the Earth was going to be destroyed by a flood and what happened what happened to its members, particularly the really committed ones who had given up their homes and jobs to work for the cult when the flood did not happen. While French members were more inclined to recognize that they had made fools of themselves and to put it down to experience, Commit members were more likely to reinterpret the evidence to show that they were right or wrong. The earth was not destroyed because of the faithfulness of the cult members. So, there are some strategies for change. Direct experience, the modeling, 
persuasive appeals, the use of incentives. According to cognitive dissonance theory, there is a tendency for individuals to seek consistency among their convictions. When there is, a, there is an inconsistency between attitudes or behaviors, dissonance, something must change to eliminate the dissonance. Dissonance can be reduced in one of three ways. First, individuals can change one or more of the attitudes, behavior, beliefs, etc., so as to make the relationship between the two elements a consonant one. When one of the dissonant elements is a behavior, the individual can change or eliminate the behavior. However, this mode of dissonance redu reduction frequently presents problems for people, as it is often difficult for people to change well-learned behavioral response. A second cognitive method of reducing dissonance is to acquire new information that outweighs the dissonant beliefs. For example, thinking smoking causes lung cancer will cause dissonance if a person smokes. However, new information such as, such as research has not proved definitely that smoking causes lung cancer may reduce the dissonance. A third way to reduce dissonance is to reduce the importance of the cognitions. A person could convince themselves that it is better to live for today than to save for tomorrow. In other words, he could tell himself that a short life filled with smoking and sensual pleasures is better than a long life devoid of such joys. In this way, he would be decreasing the importance of the dissonant cognition. Smoking is bad for one's health. Notice that dissonance theory does not state that this mode of dissonance reduction will actually work, only that individuals who are in a state of cognitive dissonance will take steps to reduce the, ex the extent of their dissonance. One of the points that dissonance theories are found of making is that people will go to all sorts of lengths to reduce dissonance. So, the theory of cognitive dissonance has been widely researched in a number of situations to develop the basic idea in more detail, and various factors that have been identified which may be important and inaptitude change. To make this topic more interactive, I'm going to need some help from you guys. So, would you like to help me with a test about positive attitude? Yes, why not? Sure, we can help you. Okay, perfect. So, Danny, would you like to read some questions to Ainoa? Yes, for sure. Okay, thank you, Danny. And now, I know you just need to be honest and answer the questions that Danny is going to read, okay? Okay, let's begin. So, if you just got an interesting idea, you need the approbation of other people to see what to do. You find appropriate people to figure out what to do with, with it. Uh, you just let it happen or the fear or something else makes you let it for another chance. Well, I think that find appropriate people is the best thing that someone can do can do have have some good advice of people that can really help you is the best option so yeah i could find appropriate people to see what can i do with the interesting idea okay and when it refers to difficulties how do you act you just run you worried uh, that kind of situation stimulates you or you keep calm and find a solution well actually when i find some difficulties or leave some difficult situation, I used to keep calm and try to find some solution to the problem and then 
be able to go on. Okay, and now if you find an obstacle in the middle of your ride in life, what do you think? Do you feel incapable to go on? Do you think that is it is going to fall over you? you think about a way to surrender it? Or you think that you're never going to avoid it? Well, in the case, I think that the best thing to do is try to find a way to surrender surrender it. It's, it's obviously that sometimes in life you are going to find some obstacles, so you need to be able to surrender all of them. Okay. And how would you feel if somebody did, uh, didn't hire, hire you for a job? you think that maybe you are not capable enough for it? you think about what is wrong with you uh, to try to uh, improve it? you think that everyone has a job that is waiting and that you are going to find yours someday? Or you think that you never have luck? Well, in the case, I would think about what is wrong with me and then try to improve it. Yeah, that would be the best option. Okay, and now what sentence would you apply more in your life? Every good thing ends, dreams are just dreams, or hope is the last thing that you lose? Wow, I really like the last one. Hope is the last thing that you must lose in every situation. Yeah, I am really agree with you. Thank you so much uh, for your help, guys. I really appreciate it, and I hope you had a nice time. You're welcome. Thank you. I really enjoyed the question. Yes, me too. So, yeah, this is a good example of positive attitude. It is more easy than we think. We must stay calm, and if we have a positive attitude in every moment, everything is going to be easier. We just need to practice. And now, Nicole, could you tell us what do you think about positive attitude? Do you think the same that I do about I know answer? Well, yes, I think that was a perfect example of positive attitude. I would really like to be like her in that sense. I am not that positive, but I agree with you. It is more easy that what we think, so I will try to be less negative. Everything is about attitude. Depending on of what attitude you have, you will live some life or another. Exactly. Thank you for your opinion. It's all right. Well, what Nicole said was totally right. I mean, the attitude you have makes you, makes you live one life or another. So be positive to live a positive life. And this is it, guys. This is everything. So thank you so much for listening to us. And we'll see you on our next podcast.